We are in Luke chapter 4 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. And this morning, the title of my message is The Tactic of Temptation. We are still in the portion of Luke's gospel where we are watching our Messiah, our Savior, being prepared for the earthly ministry in which he had been sent to fulfill. The last of that preparation is required uh, of him in this portion of Scripture, and that is where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Jesus must succeed. Adam, of course, and Eve, the only two created individuals, were given a choice. That choice was to be obedient to the Lord or to violate the one command in which he had given them. And that was not to eat of the tree at the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, after the allurement of the serpent, the temptation in which he created in the mind of Eve, Eve fell to that, Adam then followed, and of course, sin entered into the world. The perfect creation in which God had created had now been tainted by sin, of course, sin then introducing death. And from that point on, we've seen the digression of society after the perfect creation in which it started. Then God raised the nation, the nation of Israel, to be an example to all of the world, to be a testimony and a witness to all of the world that God exists. He is the one true God, Yahweh, Jehovah. And they failed due to temptation. And as they succumbed to the temptation in the wilderness wanderings, they failed in their, in, in their uh, mission to be that witness unto the world. And therefore, in their history, you see a constant uh, line of concession concerning correction and uh, chastisement that the Lord needed to bring about upon the nation of Israel. And therefore, they negated their ability to truly be the witness in which God wanted them to be. So where Israel failed, where Adam failed, Jesus needed to succeed. And we discover in our text this morning, as we continue looking at the Gospel of Luke here on Sunday morning, that Jesus, filled with the Spirit, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for the specific purpose of being tempted by Satan himself. If we are going to study and understand temptation, let us first lay some key ground rules in our discussion. The Bible clearly teaches that we have a literal adversary whose name is Satan, Lucifer, the devil, Beelzebub. He was one of God's created angels, one of a a superior line of angels, and he fell due to the pride in which he had within himself and, to, and his desire to be worshipped as God and to be recognized as God. God cast him out, cast him down due to that pride. One third of the angels went with him, and as a result, now an adversary has been created, one who has complicated the plans and purposes of God since the time of creation when Satan manifested himself as a serpent within the garden. Now, many Christians today, and I'm just 
kind of surprised to discover this, do not believe that Satan is a literal individual, but more just the personification of evil and given a pronoun as a title. But that is not the manner in which the Bible speaks of him. And though Satan is a fallen angel and a formidable uh, adversary, he is by nature a one-trick pony. And there are great limitations to his ability. Let us never consider Satan to be equal with God. Satan is not equal with God in any way, shape, or form. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He has none of the qualities of God. And though he is formidable, and though he has a very successful tactic in stumbling the individual who walks with God, you will discover very quickly in your study of the Word of God that that tactic is limited to one presentation, and that is temptation. Well, how do you know this, Eric? Well, because in two cases given to us in the Bible that it was so critical of Satan to be successful, the greatest tactic in which he presented at both occasions was the tactic of temptation. How did he stumble Eve? Through temptation. When he had the opportunity to derail the ministry and the work of the Son of God here on this earth, how did he approach the Son of God? Through temptation. I would think that if Satan had any greater weapon, he would have used it in either one of those occasions, especially the second. And yet all he could do is try to tempt the Lord. And where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded greatly. And in his success, you and I can learn how to resist temptation when we are faced with it and confronted by it. Jesus gives us this example. As we watch Jesus in this encounter, in this conflict, it's a three-round conflict, and at the end there's one man standing, and it isn't Satan. And as we come now to Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we begin, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus now, filled with the Spirit, as we remember at his baptism, the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. God the Father openly revealed who Jesus Christ was by saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, the second head of the Trinity, the Son of God, 100% man, 100% God. Filled with the Spirit, he then is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. One of the great conversations in Christianity is, Did Jesus rely on his divine nature during his three years of ministry, or did he solely rely on the Holy Spirit given to him to give us an example that we too can simply rely on the Holy Spirit to see us through our years of walking with the Lord? And there are different understandings on both occasions. 
on both perspectives. But it does appear that the emphasis is on the Spirit of God working through the Messiah. This in no way diminishes his deity or his um, divine attributes. It just simply seems to indicate that he is doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the same Holy Spirit that is given to you and I when we first believe in Jesus Christ. John tells us in his gospel that the Holy Spirit first is with us, convicting us from the outside, drawing us on to Jesus Christ. But once we are saved, once we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's the Spirit of God that works in us to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to give us the grace then as we believe on Jesus Christ for our salvation by faith alone, the Spirit then resides within us. Then we find in the book of Acts that there's a third relationship, the Holy Spirit coming upon an individual, filling them to overflowing with power and for uh, dunamis, and it's being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's giving that power. And that appears to be the status in which Jesus Christ approaches this particular encounter, filled with the Holy Spirit. And this filling of the Holy Spirit is not just one event in the life of a believer. It can happen several times in the life of the believer, as we see demonstrated throughout the book of Acts. But the Holy Spirit has been given to us as it was given to Christ. It was given to Christ without measure. And as a result, he then wander, he comes now into the wilderness to come and to uh, fulfill this divine appointment in which he has with the devil. It tells us that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. It appears that during that time of fasting, he was tempted all through it. We don't know what type of temptations those were through it. Luke gives us that insight where Matthew makes it appear more that he was tempted after those 40 days. But after the 40th day, we know for certain that the devil approached him and three times tried to stumble him, tried to tempt him, allure him away from God the Father's will, away from his dependence upon uh, the Spirit and relying then upon his flesh, and exalting himself apart from the cross. If he were to have succumbed to any one of these three temptations, he would have nullified his ability as a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. So the question then becomes, for many, could he succumb to this temptation? And that's one we have to wrestle with. Would Satan even tempt him if he could not succumb to this temptation? Or was it a demonstration that in the power of the Holy Spirit, the flesh could be be commanded by the Spirit to stay obedient to the, word, to the Word and to the Lord, even in the wake of temptation. And I'll let you wrestle with that. And now he comes, he is hungry. When an individual fasts, after about the, five, the fifth or seventh day, they lose their appetite. But by the 35th day, it's, doctors tell us that the body begins to grow extremely hungry. And then by the 40th day, that hunger would be uh, almost impossible to bear. 
By the 40th day, the hunger that an individual experiences demonstrates, according to doctors, that the body is going into starvation. This is key critical time. This is a time in which things become real very fast. And so Jesus stated being hungry here after 40th day, his body is now in a position of starvation and he is hungry and the battle begins. In each and every account and each and every temptation, Satan is trying to draw Christ away from dependency on the Spirit and submission to the will of his Father. And as we have in each case, let us read on in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God. Now, he is not questioning that. He is not questioning the validity of that statement in the manner in which it is presented here in the English and the ESV version. It is clear from the Greek that he is saying, if you truly are the Son of God referring to the fact that he already knows that Jesus is the Son of God. He is not debating that fact. But he is now asking a question in light of that fact. Since you are the Son of God, would be one way of translating it. Since you are the Son of God, or if you are the Son of God, well, command these stone, the stone to become bread. Now, We already read that Jesus was hungry, okay? I don't know about you, but, you know, hunger is one of those realities that I think we all struggle with at times. There is a true hunger when you've been working all day, your body is uh, tired, and you're hungry, and your, your stomach's empty, and you just were like, you know, I just can't wait to get something to eat, But here in Chicago, I believe that we also have what's called the false hunger, where you may not be hungry at all, but then you roll past Portillo's, and then Chipotle, and then, of course, Lou Malnati's. Those are the trifecta. (laughs) Those are my three temptations. Um, And all of a sudden, you're kind of hungry, I guess. Then you're, well, this will probably turn some of you off, your favorite sushi place. You're just like, oh, I'm really hungry. And then by the time you get to the last of all of them, you're just like, I'm starving. This was a true hunger that Jesus was contending with. Bread would have satisfied him. Satan knew that. Temptation can only be tempting if it appeals to something that you want or need. Correct? For example, how many of you get bothered by the unavailable sales calls at 9 o'clock at night? And I love it when I get called and it's 9 o'clock at night and I know it's a sales call, but I just have to figure out what in the world is so desperate that this guy has to call me at 9 o'clock to try to sell me. The latest one was a swimming pool. Now, I, th- I was like, great, yes, I want a swimming pool. I go, however, though, I live in a condo. Can you put the slide from my second floor balcony into the pool? Because I had no need for a swimming pool, although I wanted a swimming pool, but I could not have one, um, it wasn't really an option, right? It wasn't really tempting. 
Now, some of you could drive by those fast food places without even thinking about it. Others are like, oh my goodness, you know? I'm convinced that I'd lose weight just by moving out of Schaumburg, you know? But for others, something that I would never consider a temptation would be a temptation to you. Something that your flesh wants. Something that you feel that you need. Satan always crafts the temptation around the appetites of a human being. He will make something appealing to you and ask you to exercise that appeal apart from the design in which God had created it. For example, let's talk about physical intimacy. Sex. God says, this is how I've designed it, this is how I want it fulfilled, and yet our society says, no, anything goes. Now our body appetites desire that because we were created to desire that, and Satan plays upon that desire, and he tries to exploit that desire. And that's where it becomes effective, as it did here with Jesus. This was real. He was hungry. But Jesus replied... And said to him, and Jesus in verse 4 answered him and said, It is written, please mark that, this is going to be an important point for us to come back to, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, Bible students, what does Matthew's gospel offer to us that Luke's does not? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from our Father. In this temptation, it wasn't simply a temptation appealing to the hunger of Jesus. It was appealing to the flesh. Filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit into this occasion, Satan is now saying, will you fulfill the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh? Will you depart from what God has originally required of you? Will you be satisfied walking in the flesh rather than be satisfied walking in the Spirit? This is huge, folks. The Bible tells us that if we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. God the Father knew that He was hungry. God the Father was going to provide for that hunger after this ordeal had taken place. But Jesus was not going to succumb to the temptation of Satan and saying, listen, God has led me here, but I'm going to play it out in my flesh. That which has begun in the Spirit, why now do you try to fulfill in the energies of the flesh? We as Christians need to understand that as believers in Jesus Christ, we're dual-natured individuals. We have an old nature that has been crucified and resur- uh, crucified at the time of our conversion that we continuously resurrect through the course of our Christian life to allow it to hassle us as we walk with the Lord each and every day. But then we have the new nature, the spirit in which we can walk in as an individual, as a believer, that allows us to resist the temptations, to allows us to curtail and bring about self-control to the appetites of the flesh. So Jesus knew that this was not an issue simply of hunger. It was an issue of either the spirit or the flesh. 
And Jesus said that I will rely on every word that proceeds from my Father's mouth. It is that that I will use as my sustenance to sustain me in this time in which I have here on this earth. That's the notion of what he is saying here. Well, of course, Satan was not going to let up. We have round two, starting in verse five. Now the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all of this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. Satan now tries to tempt Jesus by offering him what Jesus has come to secure in and through the cross. And that is to once again bring back the dominion of this world from the ruler of this world back to God and to atone for the sin that had been birthed and conceived and birthed in the garden. Through the atonement now, Jesus Christ can begin to set things right and all in order once again. Satan says, listen, you can bypass the cross. I'll give it to you. And Jesus doesn't argue with him because Adam, when he sinned, negated his position of dominance and and, uh, having dominion over the earth, and Satan became the ruler of this world, as the New Testament calls him, the prince of the power, the ruler of this world. And Jesus now is confronted with the reality, shall I accept this offer? Shall he give it to me? And then I can bypass the cross and still appear to obtain the same objective that I originally was sent to accomplish. But what's the catch? If the catch was that Satan would give it to him, then Satan would remain superior to him. And he would remain, therefore, an adversary and in contrary to Christ for all eternity. No, Jesus Christ did not come to create a peace treaty with the devil, but to defeat the devil once and for all. And as a result, Jesus Christ now again stands on the word of God. And here we have, in verse 8, And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Again, Let us understand that the condition for this situation was that Jesus was to worship Satan. Now it's interesting that Jesus answers in the manner he does. Each and every one of these quotes are out of Deuteronomy 6 and 8. And in chapter 6 of 8 of Deuteronomy, the Lord is warning his people Israel not to forget him as they are now being poised to enter into the land of promise, God is warning them over and over and over again, don't forget me, don't forget me, don't forget me. Satan is trying to say to Jesus in both of these occasions, forget God. Now just worship me and you can bypass the suffering of the cross and I will give you what you came to obtain. And again, Jesus resisted that because that would have left Satan in a position of authority. 
But God also knows that those who worship something also serve that which they worship. Everybody worships something, folks. Everybody worships something. And that in which they worship is that in which they serve. Now, we think that an individual worshiping something other than God is something material. A house, a car, etc. But the number one idol in America today is self. We worship self in America today. And therefore, if we worship self, what do we serve? Does that mean that we have a self-serving society and culture? Would that be accurate to say? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And so under these stipulations, Jesus says, no way. For I will only worship the Lord God, and Him only will I serve. So in verse 9, round 3, And He took Him to Jerusalem, set Him on the pinnacle of the temple, which is in the southeastern corner of the temple. If you look at a map, and it's the highest point of the temple, and it's uh, looking down into the Kidron Valley. And so we're talking hundreds and hundreds of feet down. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Oh, and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Notice that within the temptations we are seeing a pattern of half-truth. Satan taking the word of God, twisting it to make it read or appear to be interpreted according to the lines in which he is presenting it. This is a very dangerous practice, and this is why I say that we must be very careful that when we read the Bible, we keep the Bible in the context that it was originally given within. If I wrote you an email, and you would never pull that email up on your computer, on your smartphone, read two sentences from it, and then run with that information. You'd start from the beginning, and you'd go all the way to the end to make sure you were getting what you needed to know. But yet when it comes to the Bible, so many Christians, they just kind of use it as a fortune cookie. They flip through it and they open it up and they read a verse and they start applying it to themselves and thinking that it means something. It's funny because often when they do that, they take the positive verses for themselves, but if they happen to flip it open to repent the filthy sinner, oh, that verse is for my husband for sure, you know, or for my wife. I think I'll put that in my kid's lunchbox, you know. Never taking it personally themselves. That's how subjective it can be. But you know that things can be taken out of context very quickly. If I were to say to you, the, you know, the other day I went to the hospital. Is that a positive or a negative statement? You don't know. If I went to the hospital because I was having a heart attack, that's a negative experience. But if I say I was going to the hospital because someone in our church was giving birth to their first child, that's a positive, right? Let's be very careful that when we read the Bible, let us keep it in the context that the Bible was originally given in. And therefore, half-truths can be eliminated. When it comes to context, 
There is first the context of the paragraph that the verse is found in. The second context is the book or the letter that that verse is found in, the entirety of that letter. And then the third context is the Bible itself from Genesis to Revelation. So there are three contexts that you need to consider when trying to properly interpret and apply a verse from the Bible. Satan doesn't do this here. Instead here, he quotes from the Psalms. And this is so ridiculous because if you know the Psalm that he is quoting, he stops. He quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. Now, I'm going to read verse 13 to you because it changes everything. Concerning the Messiah, he is correct, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 13. You will tread on the lion and on the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. This goes back to Genesis 3.15 where the promise is that the Messiah will crush the head of Satan. Satan gives him the first two verses and excludes the last because he doesn't like that one. This means Jesus wins. But this is the half-truth. This is what happens. Oh yeah, he's hoping that Jesus falls into this temptation, therefore he won't be able to crush his head. And yet, he persists with this presentation of this temptation. And Jesus answers in verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan was hoping that Jesus Christ would reveal himself by throwing himself off the building and allowing the angels to attend to him, therefore gaining the public's recognition of who he is. Now, when you read all four of the Gospels, the public recognition was greatly divided all the way up until one specific moment where the division was made clear. And that was the cross. Jesus said, often when he was about to be taken and about to be executed or about to be imprisoned, that his hour had not yet come and he skirted the situation. He got out of it because the cross was going to be his ultimate moment of reveal. This was going to be it. This moment. Again, Satan trying to give Christ what he wanted apart from the sufferings of the cross. And Jesus said, no, I will not put the Lord to the test. And in Deuteronomy, again, in each and every one of these verses that Jesus responds within in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, they're all preceded by this warning. Don't forget the Lord your God. What a helpful idea when we are tempted not to forget the Lord our God. And to remember the word of God in the context in which God had originally given it. And not to believe that this temptation and the fulfillment of it is going to satisfy me in some way that God cannot or will not. 
And in verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Matthew's gospel adds here that the angels did attend to him. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding countries. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. But I don't want you to miss verse 13, and I purposely skipped it. Though the devil had lost and was defeated at this moment, notice what he says. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. When was that opportune time? I thought about that as I was considering this, and the most the point that came out to me over and over again, that the place I believe Jesus was probably the most vulnerable next was in the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. Where he prayed and asked the Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from my hand, but not my will, but your will be done. It seemed like that was the point that he was next, the most vulnerable. And Satan still was defeated. As he continued his dependence on the Spirit, as he continued his submission to the will of the Father, where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus Christ succeeded, and now his ministry has begun. The preparation is over. It is time now for him to come out onto the scene and to begin his three years of public ministry throughout all the land of Judea and Israel. Let us understand that temptation is a reality that all of us face each and every day. With these 40 days, Jesus exampled for us the manner in which you and I, too, can overcome temptation. First, let us understand that temptation is the primary weapon of our adversary. The Bible says that the devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and he's doing a great job at it, isn't he? Peter says he's going about like a roaring lion, seeking in whom he may destroy. Satan is not your friend, but Satan is greatly limited. First of all, let us understand that Satan is not omnipresent. He isn't everywhere at one time, like God is. And so often, when we are being tempted, we think that, oh, this is directly from Satan. I don't know if Satan is going to give you necessarily that much of his attention. He appeared here for Jesus because it was important, right? The second Adam. So what did Satan do? Well, in his mastery of deception, what Satan did as the ruler of this world is that he created a world system and built within the world system were all the temptations needed to stumble one in Jesus Christ. We don't have to look far within our world system to know that the world is replete with pitfalls of temptation if we are not careful to avoid them. For in fact, John alludes to this in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, when he writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... Jesus being offered the bread at his time that he was hungry. The desires of the eyes. As Satan took him to that point and said, Look, all these kingdoms can be yours if you only will worship me. And then John went on to say the pride of life. 
thinking that we are ourselves more important than we actually are. To have Jesus independently reveal himself to the world before the suffering of the cross. He says, these things are not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Temptation is only effective when it appeals to something we want or need of a body appetite. There is much being written today about um, postponed gratification. We have understood now that instant gratification has got our world into a lot of trouble, hasn't it? You know, going to the Chevy dealer and looking at the Corvette that I have all picked out, and he comes out and says, listen, you just have to sign here and you can drive off today. And the monthly payments are very affordable. You just want to say, get ye behind me, Satan. Yeah, they're affordable for the next 73 years. You know? Instant gratification has gotten people into a lot of trouble. Pro, uh, you know, prolonged gratification or gratification that is postponed is now causing individuals to think before they do something, right? When you go in to buy something you can't afford, the salesman's tactic is trying to get you to buy it before you really think it through. Satan, when he approaches you, will often try to get you to act or react without thinking it through. Often, when people fall into sin, and it's devastating sin, and I hear this often when people fall into adultery, they'll say, oh, Pastor, I don't even know how it happened. It just all of a sudden happened. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Come on. And sure enough, yeah, you know, we were flirting around and we were friends on Facebook and, you know, she, she just, you know, gave me back rubs at work and so forth. And, but I just don't know how it happened. What, what? That's when you just want to do the laying of hands. <laughs> Wake up. Temptation is one of those things that Satan will often have you react without thinking about it and then having to consider the consequences after. So Satan created a world that is filled with these things. And here's what Jesus did to overcome it. Just a few things. Number one, he walked in the power of the Spirit. Number one, he walked in the power of the Spirit. That promise is given to us. He who walks in the Spirit shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does that mean? How do I walk in the Spirit? It means to feed the Spirit, to overcome the flesh. And how do we feed the Spirit? Is by knowing the Word of God thoroughly. When I do my morning devotions, it's not just to get close to the Lord and to you know, share my prayers with Him and then wait for his, uh, his replies and reading His Word and so forth. It's also preparing my heart, my mind for the day's events. Not knowing what I'm going to be confronted with through the course of the day, but the Lord knows and often pre-prepares me for those things. And like Jesus was able to quote the verses verbatim because he knew the word so well, so you and I also must know the word of God in such a way that when we are tempted, we can, of course, refute the half-truth in which we are being presented. 
Secondly, not only do we need to feed the Spirit, but we need to set our mind on heavenly things and not on earthly things. We need to keep our minds in heaven, realizing that we are a citizen of the kingdom, that we are one who is destined for eternity with Christ. Therefore, not sowing to the flesh, which then reaps corruption, but sowing, making decisions that in the Spirit that reap everlasting life. Secondly, Jesus was a man of prayer. We know that in that time of fasting and prayer, he prepared himself 40 days for the final three rounds of the temptation that were leveled against him at that time. I want to be clear about something because fasting is one of those things that people are saying, all right, you know, I know the Bible talks about fasting, but I really don't understand what it's all about. Unfortunately, I think often we make fasting more about what we don't do during that time than what we do during that time. Fasting is taking a moment of time for consecration unto the Lord. Consecrating myself unto the Lord by spending time with Him at a time where I would normally do something else. If I were simply to go through a week and say, I, I fasted for one week, I, I, did not, uh, avoid, I, I didn't touch anything, I drove past all those restaurants really quick, and I didn't have one bit of food, that would benefit me nothing. But in those times in which I am walking away from food, I consecrate myself unto the Lord in prayer and just submerge myself in His Word, bringing my heart and mind back to his authority, that's where the real effectiveness of fasting takes place. Don't focus on what we don't do during fasting. Focus on what we should be doing, and that is consecrating ourselves unto the Lord. And that is what Jesus did to prepare himself. And number three, obviously, he was a man of the word of God. Why? Because he wrote it. He knew it. I'm getting very concerned at the number of Christians who aren't spending time in God's Word every day. And I hope you all know me I, well enough to, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anybody, but I'm saying it is for your benefit as a believer in Jesus Christ. A believer outside of the Word of God, one who is not reading the Word of God on a daily basis, and I don't want to put any legalistic trip on you. I, I don't want to, you know, scare you into this, but I do, Okay. Um, you're going to be anorexic as a Christian, okay? And many people are wondering why they're just not walking in the victory. You know what? Let the Word of God start working in your hearts and in your lives to change you from the inside out. Now, am I saying that every single time we read the Bible on a daily basis, we're going to have some euphoric experience with God where we end up at the end of our devotionals compelled to sing zippity-doo-dah. No, that's not the case. But after a while, you'll discover that the Word of God starts washing away the old and feeding the new. It allows you to abandon the old nature and allow it to stay dead in its position of crucifixion, and walk in the newness of life through the power of the Spirit. As a father, as a, as a husband, 
It is a necessity for me to be the parent, to be the husband that I need to be, to be in the word of God, to help my wife, to you know, assist her and to encourage her to speak to my daughter when she goes through difficult times. I need to know the word before I can share the word with her. So it's imperative. Don't be intimidated by it. I believe that one in, who is a Christian filled with the Spirit, that means the Spirit residing in them, can understand the word of God. Notice what Jesus said about temptation. He says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. That is Satan. It is not sin to be tempted. Obviously, Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. He goes on to say, now notice this, it sounds radical, but let's keep it in its context. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter into eternal life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into hell's fire. Now, Jesus is speaking in radical terms because he is saying this. If there is something in your life that is causing you temptation, get rid of it, okay? If you struggle with alcohol, I wouldn't suggest going to the, you know, the liquor store, right? If you're struggling with online porn, get rid of the computer for a while. If you're flirting with someone at work and you shouldn't be doing it, then maybe you have to even quit your job. Run from the temptation that you are faced with, understanding the consequences are going to be devastating if you fall into it. Sometimes to advert temptation, we need to be radical about the manner in which we deal with the scenario that places us in that temptation. As Jesus said in our prayers, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. But then Paul writes this to us also. It is this that I want to end on this, this morning. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What a blessed promise, right? That we will not be tempted beyond our ability. But with it, God will provide a way of escape. But there's a responsibility in that verse too, isn't there? To take the way of escape. And then we'll be able to endure it. When Joseph was taken into Potiphar's house in the book of Genesis, Potiphar's wife started, well, excuse my language, oogling him and desired him for, of course, sexual purposes. And Joseph didn't even play around. He just ran out as she grabbed his tunic, and he ran out of there naked, but he ran out of there to get away from the temptation. I always think of that illustration. Even though the nakedness was as bad as it could be, it was still better than falling into the temptation in Potiphar's house. 
With that way of tem- with, with that ability to resist the temptation, God who gives us a way, we must take the way. We must seek it and we must take it to spare ourselves from falling into the temptation in which comes about. As we live in this world that is ruled by the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 